Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Today, LGBTQ plus inclusion in the workplace, our latest research on how to better support our LGBTQ plus colleagues, not just during Pride Month, but year round. One of the things we found in our research and in doing both focus groups and interviews with a number of LGBTQ plus leaders globally was that almost all of them could point to these really powerful moments of somebody being an ally for them, of a leader taking a visible stance, somehow really expressing great uh, support, either for the community broadly or for that individual. That's Diana Ellsworth. She's a McKinsey partner and leads our work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hey, Diana. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start with some context. Diana, we're recording this podcast during Pride Month, and many large companies are celebrating and showing support for the LGBTQ plus community in a myriad of vital and visible ways. At the same time, creating a workplace where members of this demographic feel supported and included is obviously more than a month-long exercise. At a high level, what does our research tell us about how LGBTQ plus employees are faring at work? We find that the LGBTQ plus community is underrepresented uh, in the workplace compared to sort of the role they have in the in broader sort of society. And that becomes increasingly true as you get to more senior levels in the organization. And so we find that many members of the LGBTQ plus community feel like they are sort of an only in the workplace. And so then that starts to, to play into the second piece, which, which our research looked at, which is around, you know, the experience being there. And, and what we find is that, you know, the LGBTQ plus community is much more likely to experience a number of, of microaggressions they're, you know, much more likely to feel like they can't talk about their lives outside of work openly and comfortably. Um, they feel like they're they're constantly needing to to correct colleagues' assumptions about their personal lives. There are many incredible examples, right, of, of, of members of the community thriving at work. But overall, as a community, there are just a set of, of barriers and challenges that, that the community still faces in a, in a regular way. I know we have some forthcoming research on workplace inclusion across the gender spectrum. What have we learned about the experience of trans and gender nonconforming employees? You know, we find that the trans community actually faces some of the sharpest barriers in the workplace. They are, in this topic of microaggressions, they're twice as likely to hear sexist jokes about people of their gender than employees who are not members of the, the trans community are. They're actually three times more likely to feel like they can't talk about themselves or their life outside of work. And what that translates to is they also are much more likely to think about leaving their company. So, you know, when we did our research, we found that 21% of cisgender are people who associate gender-wise with the biological sex they were born with, we're thinking about leaving the workplace. And that was as high as 32% for trans employees. So it's an even more urgent case. Brian, the pandemic has obviously catalyzed a lot of conversation on social injustices and inequities in the United States. And obviously, 
galvanized a lot of leaders to make new commitments to enacting change. In your day-to-day with clients, do you see signs of meaningful progress on diversity imperatives, whether LGBTQ plus or generally? One of the things that we're hearing from companies and seeing is as they think about their representation, you know, they're thinking about, hey, am I getting the right people in the door? And for some groups, the answer is yes. And for some groups, the answer is no. For the LGBTQ plus community, you know, it's underrepresented even at the entry level. Uh, whereas in the black community, some of our research uh, in race in the workplace would show that black employees in the front line are actually overrepresented in the workforce and at corporate entry level jobs at about at parity. And so I think companies are now starting to get that kind of data to ask the kind of questions to say, well, how are we doing on diversity broadly, but how are we doing with specific groups? And the most advanced companies are saying, and how are we doing at intersectionality across the groups? Bill, Uh, Before we get much further, we've talked about inclusion on this podcast before, and you offered us a really helpful summation of our work on what inclusion means and why it's such an important part of the diversity discussion generally and the discussion we're having right now. Would you recap briefly for us? Well, we've discovered, and certainly we can get into this data more later, is the importance of your colleagues, teammates, and that level of day-in and day-out interaction really, really has a huge influence on whether or not someone feels like they're included or it's an inclusive environment. And so this way, we think we can help people really start getting their head around, does it feel inclusive or not, individually and in general, and what can you do about it? Leader behavior level, team member behavior, and then the overall company. We're hopeful that by divvying it up like that, you can measure it more uh, you know, discreetly, and you can a- take action in a far more pointed manner. I have a question for Diana. Uh, When we look at the women in the workplace data across our participating companies, which tend to be larger organizations, we find that LGBTQ plus women are underrepresented by over half, even at the entry level. I was wondering, where are those women? Are they unemployed? Are they working in small businesses? Are they not reporting that they're LGBTQ plus in the survey? Do we have a sense of where that missing talent is? The answer is we don't have a great sense of it. We have this recognition that they're they're not in corporate America, um, fairly broadly defined. But trying to figure out where they are is is part of the work ahead, I think, and to understand you know, what it is that, that's attracting them other places, or we certainly have some, some evidence of what is uh, not attracting them into corporate America based on the experience of LGBTQ plus women who are there. Hey, Diana, starting at recruiting and through to the earliest moments of an employee's experience with an employer that are really going to set us off on a path of this place really feels inclusive or really doesn't, you know, sort of things that we can tease out and go, the first experience with a recruiter, the first experience of how the forms come in or how difficult it is, you know, that sort of thing. Are we getting any even anecdotal experience of what we can think about upstream? Because we're spending so much time on diversity and equitable access, you know, in our, our, our recruiting pools and our sourcing that I wonder if we, we can avoid stubbing the toe right out of the gate. We hear lots of stories about Examples were well before somebody had sort of day one at an organization, they'd already gotten very strong signals one way or the other about whether or not the environment was going to be inclusive to to the LGBTQ plus community. You know, that is everything from, you know, just the very basics of, you know, what's the language, what are the visuals, et cetera, on your website. When you're filling in 
the application, right? And it asks for gender. Is there more of an option than just male and female at this point? But then we also hear lots of stories, you know, I've heard more than I care to admit of folks who were in an interview and someone was trying to make very friendly small talk and therefore asked a man about his wife, recognizing that, you know, he was wearing a a wedding ring or asked a woman about her husband um, and just made the the, the false assumption that the wedding ring implied that they were married to someone of the, the opposite gender. And you can imagine the awkwardness in that moment um, for the candidate to navigate, which is, you know, what do I say? <laughs> How do I handle this? But then also the, just the, the sort of resounding echo of that moment in that person's experience, whether or not they choose to, to work there. How do you recommend handling that kind of situation if you were to witness it? So I think, you know, it's an opportunity if you're if you're another person in that situation, um, you know, it's certainly an opportunity to try to jump in before the person is on the spot to sort of correct, you know, if, if you were to hear someone say, oh, you know, is is your wife also interested in moving to X or whatnot to say, or you know, you I think you can just jump in and say, or husband, right? It's just a way of signaling, actually, I don't know what the answer is for you. And we as a you know organization aren't going to be, shouldn't be making that assumption. It's certainly also an opportunity, you know, if if, if not appropriate for whatever reason in the moment, certainly to have a conversation with your colleagues afterwards. Because again, a number of these these sort of microaggressions aren't ill-intended. But they really do influence somebody's somebody's experience um, in a way that that can be quite negative over time. Diana, the 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 not ill intended part. Boy, as someone who I'm certain has been in the world of not being ill intended, but really stuck my foot in my mouth over the course of the years and just tried to spend so much more time being thoughtful. So much of that thoughtfulness starts with don't assume that your worldview, your experience, your assumptions translate everywhere. And I do wonder. Well, we have a disproportionate amount of middle-aged to older white men who are doing the interviewing, leading recruiting. How can we step into it, into the conversation, to start addressing those sorts of assumptions that even if it seems innocuous, in air quotes, can have a rather substantial impact on the company, its brand, its value proposition, and that candidate? Absolutely. Just because it's it's not malice does not mean that it doesn't have a real impact um, it, as an individual incident. And then certainly these sort of incidents over time, um, you know, one of the, the women who we interviewed as part of our research actually talked about the fact that it happened so often um, that people assumed she had a husband. And particularly if she spoke about her kids, people assumed she had a husband and she talked about the fact that, again, most people weren't ill-intended. And then it created this really big awkwardness because they make the assumption, they say something, then she has this moment where she actually says, oh, not my husband, my wife. That person then feels horrible, awful. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she finds herself in the position of having to tell them, no, no, it's okay. And, you know, be the comforter uh, in this situation. And she said, you know, I just got, it's it's so tiresome that you know, it actually has become almost a, an unfortunate game I play, which is how quickly, without it being awkward, can I mention my wife so that I try to sort of get ahead of and prevent the awkward moment where someone else mentions my husband? And you just think about the fact that she's going through this all the time, right, in interactions with people. And so I think, you know, that it obviously just creates 
static and noise and distraction from, from us trying to, you know, be our best selves at work if we're dealing with this sort of thing. And so I think to your question, Bill, what do you, what can you do about it? I mean, I think there's probably two levels. One is, you know, there's probably some very formal, um, training for people who are going to interact with recruits or do interviewing about, you know, assumptions not to make, things to think about, language. You know, one of the big ones is people will sometimes, even if a company has a parental leave policy, you know, people will still talk about a maternity or a paternity policy, which don't always apply directly to members of the LGBTQ plus community. If you're a mom, but not the birth mom, you still don't get paternity leave, um, but but you might get second parent leave or parental bonding leave. Or, and again, a lot of companies have moved to change their language, but we have to help the individuals within the company uh, know and embrace this and and use that language. So I think there's probably some formal training. I think there's also a second component, which is just the broader, I don't know, how do we shine, how do we tell some of these stories, shine light on them enough for people to have a little bit of the realization of, you know, gosh, I really do have to think about this differently and and not see the whole world as, as you know, mini-me's running around because there are a lot of folks out there who are actually probably quite different from me and have quite different expectations for their employers as well. As a manager, Diana, what can a manager do to make it welcoming? I mean, we've talked a lot about things to avoid, things to be careful of. Are there things that managers can do to show that they're particularly thoughtful and open? If you think about microaggressions being these small things that maybe each one isn't that hurtful, but gosh, they add up and it really impacts you. There's actually the positive sort of opposite of that, which is, you know, every time somebody does use inclusive language, it actually provides this positive signal that there this is a safe environment, that you are embraced, encouraged, respected, valued. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, there are ways for managers or just peers, again, to Bill's point earlier, that this is a, a neat topic in some ways because peers have big influence as well. And there are ways for leaders and peers to think about using inclusive language in a way that signals support. There are a number of companies that have, you know, ally programs. And with that comes some sort of, you know, allyship stickers that you can put on your laptop or that you can put a, you know, table tent on your, your office desk um, in the in a world when we are back in offices with desks, perhaps. Um, but just ways that, again, actually visually signal that even if you're not a member of the community, it's it's a community you're very committed to to supporting. And those visual signals can make a can make a really big difference, right? They can add up over time and very much influence somebody's experience. My daughter was just pleading with me for some shirling slippers from Uggs that were part of Uggs Pride. And that is, that's a very public and visible symbol that could give a reputational advantage to a company that's looking to attract the kind of talent that Brian was talking about as, you know, not being accounted for. What can B2B companies do to signal public support and acceptance for LGBTQ plus employees and causes. We're here in, in Pride Month, and if you uh, you know scroll LinkedIn, you see many a logo has been sort of transitioned to some sort of rainbow version of that 
of that logo. And there are plenty of B2B companies that that are making that choice today. Same thing with, you know, participation in in pride events uh, where, you know, yes, I think there are more B2C companies that are that are marching in parades or sponsoring them. But you're seeing an increasing number of B2B companies as well because they are equally competing uh, for diverse talent. And so you're seeing that there. And then there are any number of, um, you know, conferences to be a part of recruiting uh events and fairs that are specifically focused on LGBTQ plus talent. And you're seeing, you know, over the past 15 years or so that I've been paying attention to such conferences, you're seeing a real expansion in not just the number of companies that are participating, but the breadth of companies and the breadth of industries that they represent. I'm curious, is there a pivot point that we can help leaders with, particularly those that are in power, trying to help those have a more equitable shake at the place and say it just cannot be passive? Listening is great. Action against the folks doing the nonsense is better. And is, is there like a view on that, right? In terms of you need both or the pivot in allyship really does pivot towards action. What, what's our thinking there? One of the things we found in our research and in doing both focus groups and interviews with a number of LGBTQ plus leaders globally was that almost all of them could point to these really powerful moments of somebody being an ally for them, of a leader taking a visible stance, uh, somehow really expressing great uh, support, either for the community broadly or for that individual, but that individual as a member of the community, um, not despite being a member of the community. And so I think there's really there really is something there, Bill, which is this notion of, you know, finding opportunities to be an active ally can have a, you know, significant impact on not just somebody's experience, but actually their career trajectory. Diana, do you have an example, maybe even from your own career, of an ally intervening on your behalf? Yep. So I so there are two that come to mind um, from my own experience that, that I'm happy to share. You know, one was, you know, we work in, in consulting. Um, and so we do a lot to sort of uh, influence the, the McKinsey environment, but we spend a lot of time actually out at our clients' environments as well. And I was out to lunch with, I was fairly junior at the time, with a McKinsey partner and a client. And we went to a restaurant and the client commented, sort of in passing, that this was a restaurant where there there often were a lot of gay people. And he didn't say it in a particularly derogatory way, but it was sort of an awkward comment and an odd comment. And there was sort of this information asymmetry in that, you know, he didn't know that that impacted me more than it might impact straight cisgender people. And, you know, I knew that and this partner knew that. And so there was sort of an awkward moment and it just kind of moved on. And we had a, you know, lovely lunch and and we left the restaurant. And the moment we were out of earshot of the client, the partner turned to me and said, oh my gosh, what should I have done? I didn't know what to do. Should I have said something to him in the moment? I'm, I can go right now. I can walk over to where his car is. I can say something to him now. Um, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say something to somebody else at the, you know, the organization? I so appreciated. We now had a lovely 90-minute lunch, right? This, had, this was still on that partner's mind. And he wanted my guidance, which I actually think was really helpful because different people probably would have wanted different things. And so I was able to say to him, actually, it's totally fine. I haven't worked here very long, so I don't know him very well. At some point before too long, it will undoubtedly come out, <laughs> right, that that, uh, that that was an awkward moment for me. And I will take it up with him at that point. Actually, I don't need you to do anything. 
But the fact that he was sort of tracking it and very conscious and very much wanted my counsel on what to do and then was very willing to go take an action really stood out to me as a moment of just feeling like this this was somebody who supported me. And if I had wanted him to to take a, an action of any sort, he absolutely had my back and would have. And that's sort of a, you know, being an ally and, and actually taking on sort of a negative situation. I think of another example, you know, when I first joined McKinsey, actually, we didn't have any out consultants in the the five offices that made up our seven office at the time, including Atlanta, where, I, where I'm located. You know, I was a little... I don't know, quiet about it at first, <laughs> um, but but not. I mean, I was out. I joined being out and and was out, but but wasn't something I, I made a big deal out of. And then we had a business analyst join uh, a year after me, who I appreciated. Felt like we should we should have a, a more visible presence in the office, and so he really pushed us to do an event for Pride that year and have the office sponsor it. And so we did. And the next, and it was a lovely event. Lots of people came. It was it was good. The next Friday, the head of our office who I did not know very well at all, saw me in the hallway and said, oh, Diana, can you come by my office this afternoon? Would love to catch up quickly. And, of course. And so I went by his office a few hours later um, when his assistant told me he was free. And, you know, he said, oh, Diana, how was, you know, how was the event last Friday? And I said, oh, it was, it was great. And there was this like long, awkward 10 second pause where I realized, you know, I thought this was small talk. Like he was asking me that to be nice. And then he was going to ask me the big important question that he'd called me to his office to ask me about some client or some big project. And I realized after the 10 second awkward pause that actually he called me to his office because he really wanted to hear about the pride event we'd had. And he was really sorry he'd missed it because he'd been out of town, but he actively, you know, cared about it. And it was, you know, once I realized that, we ended up launching into this wonderful 10 or 15 minute conversation about the event and what we did and who was there. And it was just this sort of standout moment where it hadn't even occurred to me he would sort of care enough to want to have a real conversation about it. I think the idea of both masking because you'd like to bring more of your whole self and, and can't, don't think you can versus masking because it's also not your job to put your life on display for everyone. And like any other person, you decide how much you're going to bring bring to work and just ease your way into it. I've been trying to find an articulate way to talking about masking that's your choice because you have agency versus masking that as a survival technique because you, you don't feel like you can. Does, does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I think there's people who, for their own choice, aren't ready, don't want to be out in overall or in a specific moment. And that is different than feeling unsafe, unwelcome, uncomfortable because of somebody else. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even so much, it doesn't have to be about not being ready as much as what you spoke about earlier, Diana, shouldering this additional burden, which just adds frictional cost every day as you're explaining and coming out over and over again and educating your colleagues. And not everyone may be in the position where they're able to do that. I think that's absolutely right. I will say even as myself, somebody who is, you know, quite open and has been for a long time and is quite comfortable, I still have the moment sometimes where I'm on, you know, an airplane next to a random stranger who makes an assumption and asks about my husband. And I still have that moment sometimes where I'm like, do I really have the energy to have this conversation or do I just smile and turn back to my laptop and do my work? Or do I decide, actually, this is a, you know, the way people learn is by realizing their assumptions are, are not always correct. And there's value in my saying, actually, it's not my husband, it's my wife. 
but there's a choice to be made um, in each of those moments that that people have to have to make. We've seen a few high profile LGBTQ plus and particularly trans leadership appointments lately, right? So, for example, Rachel Levine, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Health, who was the first openly trans federal official confirmed by the Senate. But, like, surely from a numbers perspective, Brian talked about underrepresentation at every stage. And in particular, most trans workers are going to be unlikely to find visible role models in in the leadership of their organization or on the board of the average Fortune 500 company. So allyship is one way forward. What are some other options for companies there that haven't yet cultivated the pipeline or attracted the talent to fill those gaps and create role models internally? I think one of the things that is just critical in any organization um, for bringing all sorts of underrepresented talent up through the organization is the notion of sponsorship, right? Are there are there more senior and influential people who are going to create opportunities for you? One of the things that becomes really important is how do we find sort of diverse talent to sponsor and people who are who are different from ourselves? And again, it's something that the leaders who have made it um, to the to senior levels in the LGBTQ plus community have almost all pointed to to real experiences of sponsorship and people who were looking out for them, advising them, but also creating opportunities for them. Um, And that's, I think it's just critical to move the needle across, again, any number of of diversity dimensions. And what our research shows is uh, that that there are communities that are really under-sponsored. So we were talking earlier about the trans community. The trans community uh, in uh, sort of corporate America is finds significantly lower levels of sponsorship uh, than other communities do. And so it, it really hurts the potential of moving these folks up and through the organization, even if they're incredibly talented and have a lot to offer. Diana, I had a question about generational change. Do you see that Gen Z and um, maybe the younger millennials, do you see a difference in their attitudes towards LGBTQ plus colleagues and communities, do you see a positive trend? I mean, one story I have is my son uh, plays on this high school lacrosse team and the goalie is a trans woman. And at the end, no one cares. I mean, everybody's like, hey, she had a great game. This is, it's just a part of that person's identity. Just like, you know, being right-handed is part of Will's identity. You know, it's just a natural part of it. I was just wondering, you know, do you see in, any of the younger generations in the workforce, do you see a difference in um, how they approach their LGBTQ plus colleagues? What we see is that the younger generation in the workforce is is absolutely more open on this topic and not just open, but, but almost sort of expects and demands uh, more in terms of inclusion uh, than, than sort of generations that came before them. What I think is really interesting, though, is we also actually found in our global research that more junior employees are actually less likely to be out at the workplace than more senior employees. And in some ways, that felt very counterintuitive because I think we expected if the younger generations, A, are that much more likely to actually identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, and then are also much more sort of 
open on these topics, in some ways it's surprising that they're actually less likely to be out. I think what we found, though, is there's just feels like there's a lot more sort of on the line for them. When you're a sort of junior new employee, you don't necessarily know if it's a safe environment to be out, if it's a comfortable environment, if it's going to hurt your career progression, which points to why all of these sort of visible visible (laughs) signals of credible support for the community as early as the recruiting process really matters. Because that's how you create an environment where, where your sort of junior employee base does feel like it's not something to be, you know, hemmed and hawed over and a big trade-off, but actually if, if they want to be out in the workplace, that they absolutely can and should be making that choice. Younger LGBTQ plus employees tend to be really densely diverse as a demographic, I think, which which raises that topic of intersectionality and kind of highly individual needs that exist within the LGBTQ plus community of employees, right? Is there a risk of treating LGBTQ plus employees as a monolith? The community is absolutely not a monolith. And so there is a lot of value in sort of understanding that nuance and and understanding, again, the different challenges, the different, different components of the community you know, might face. But then I think also, you know, we've talked about intersectionality in this discussion. It's not just about the experience that might exist differently for, you know, a lesbian than it does for a bisexual man than it does for a a gay man. It's also the intersectionality of, you know, members of the community who are also people of color and what race and ethnicity do they identify with and how does that influence their experience? There's value in the community coming together as a community because there's there's a lot of value in sort of the the numbers and feeling like you're a part of something and you're not the only. Um, but there is also a danger, I think you're right, to, to sort of see it as one common community when the reality is the experiences that people are having, that the barriers they face um, and the needs they may feel that they have can be very different for different members of the community. Folks may be hearing some rain in the background. It's raining in New York City right now. And that speaks a little bit to the way that the pandemic has illuminated more of our personal lives at work. And we've seen many folks appreciate the benefits of bringing a fuller sense of themselves to work during this pandemic via video chat and so forth. Has virtual work had any more nuanced effects for LGBTQ plus colleagues? it sometimes took sort of relationships that were strong to another level because you actually did see somebody's home and and could feel connected to them in some way. Um, You might see somebody's significant other, you know, come in the screen at some point. And again, for folks who, who had strong relationships to start or positive relationships, there are, there are certainly stories we've heard about them only becoming more positive as other folks really got sort of invited into their experience in a way that you don't in a traditional workplace. That said, you know, we also saw in a lot of research that actually members of the LGBTQ plus community sort of disproportionately uh, feared losing ground at work, felt isolated, and struggled with sort of mental health brought about by the pandemic in a way that actually was higher than other, than other employees faced. And so 
there are, there are, there are stories both ways um, and certainly positive examples of the way things have gotten better or improved upon a good situation for, for some employees. But for many others, actually, this has been a particularly challenging time for the community. And is that something leaders should think about if we move into a hybrid period that's sustained? You know, I think the hybrid sort of workplace is something that we are all going to have to figure out on many dimensions. But it is certainly true um, that that for the LGBTQ plus community, the sort of working remotely has, again, benefits like it does for everybody, but also real risks, especially if you take sort of a global view of the workforce. And there are a number of, of geographies, and you could point to some even in the U.S., but certainly geographies elsewhere um, as well where people are quite fearful about actually having people sort of have that that visibility and welcome into their private life uh, in a way that that hybrid work or virtual work somewhat requires. Many global companies have offices in countries that have more limited protections and more inhibited social freedoms for LGBTQ plus workers. What can leaders do when some employers are battling an even more acute lack of cultural acceptance than we see here in the U.S.? You know, what I would say is, you know, you can't control the, you know, legal and regulatory environment uh, of the company. I would actually argue you can potentially influence it in some ways, but you can't control that. But you absolutely can control the experience that your employees have when they are at work um, at your organization. And we've seen really inspiring examples of companies who have actually taken this on directly, have sort of tracked what is the sort of inclusive experience that our LGBTQ plus colleagues have around the globe. One company we, we talked to in our research that, you know, talked about very much measuring this in a survey that they did annually and then celebrating um, not just the highest performing sort of inclusive offices, but also those that made the most progress to try to sort of in- highlight and encourage, you know, that forward momentum. And then they also sort of quietly behind but behind the scenes identified, you know, a set of priority offices each year that were not inclusive environments for their employees and then worked very directly with sort of that that sort of country leadership, office leadership to say, you know, what's the sort of strategic plan we're going to put in place to to change the environment so that again regardless of what they experience outside of the workplace, in the workplace, our employees who are members of this community are going to feel included and supported. I wonder if there's not an opportunity, though, to push the companies a little harder. For sure, there is a legal framework and rules and regulations that vary by country, right? No doubt. But, you know, you have different rules for safety, different rules, you know, for how much people are paid, et cetera, that vary country to country. But, you know, you could be operating in a country, let's say, allows workers to be paid dramatically less and or doesn't have particularly stringent safety protocols, but the company insists that you follow the most stringent safety protocols because that's what they want you know, their plant to be like. It would seem like if part of your ethos is an environment of acceptance, is an environment of inclusivity, is an environment of actual equity, then why wouldn't you just insist that everybody plays by those rules regardless of where they're domiciled? Many large international organizations, you know, they've had countries that are generally embargoed. They've had, you know, anti-bribery. I mean, lots of those things exist where if you happen to be from a certain part of the world, you just can't do it, period. Why wouldn't we just behave that way? Because it's how we behave, regardless of the location, you know? I mean, that's that for me is one. I'm not sure we should give anybody a pass anywhere. You know, we either believe it or we don't. 
I was wondering, Diana, if you had a view of what really great employee resource groups do within the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. At their core, there's there's this connectivity piece, right? How do you how do you help people feel like they are part of a community and they are not sort of the only because that has incredibly positive impact on their employee experience? I think those that are really leading and candidly that are that are most supported in the organization often do see their role as being much bigger than that. And so they do see playing a really big role related to recruitment um, of helping to broaden the pipeline uh, of others coming in. They play a role related to mentorship um, and sort of advising. And then, you know, there's absolutely a role that these organizations can play in helping to educate and inform and build allyship uh, and build awareness with the broader community. That all said, I think there's also a real danger of putting all of this work on what is often an underrepresented and too small uh, number of, of human beings. And this work is often considered, you know, on top of your day job, you now get to, you know, lucky you help with recruitment and mentoring and educating the uninformed potential allies in your organization. And so I think the the organizations that often have the most successful and robust uh, employee resource groups also have a way of acknowledging and rewarding employees who are really contributing through those. And so I think in a minority of examples, that's actually financial reward. But in a number of examples, you know, it's something that is brought into performance reviews and the performance management process. And people are really, you know, celebrated for their contributions. What's the best way for folks to test whether they're actually making progress? You know, I think it's a combination of of a number of things that help you know if you're making progress. So there's obviously the representation side and, you know, ways to to sort of, you know, encourage self-ID and track representation and progression through the organization. But then on the inclusion side, you know, I think it is a combination. We've done a lot of work to understand how do you robustly understand what inclusion is and what different subsets of employees' experiences are and where those might be the same or different and, and where there are challenges. And then you can certainly track over time, you know, what I think of as sort of the gaps, right? What's the experience between men and women? What's the experience between your LGBTQ plus population and your straight cis population? Over time, are you are you shrinking the gaps um, where there are negative gaps and, and the, the underrepresented group is having a, a more negative experience? But then I think there's also something to be said for these pulse surveys. I think a lot of companies actually throughout the pandemic have, have taken on some sort of employee pulse surveys and saying, hey, when we do that, we, we shouldn't treat our entire employee base as a single unit. And we shouldn't say, oh, great, you know, satisfaction um, uh, or happiness or whatever it is has gone up from, you know, 73 weeks ago to 73 this week. Um, but actually saying, how is that how is that moved for various members uh, or various various demographics and various communities? The idea of the data is all you know it is to to measure progress. It's also to help you take action so that you can sort of in real time know if there are communities that that may need more support. Uh, you know, let's stick with that one for a second. Remember, Diana, when we were first looking at the inclusion assessment, intersectionality was a big part of it was all, but also was just like cultural homogeneity, this idea of, does the average tell us anything? You know, naturally, often when you write an instrument or a survey or anything where you measure, you want to go to an average and how are we doing? I think this is one of those areas where it's really, really important to just not trust the average. Just assume that the average is masking just massive variability. 
And so both when how we're how we're doing on an overall sense, like in this case, inclusion, or individual felt perception of it, you know, how we're doing as well as what you can do on it is bound to have massive variability. And if you don't tap into these communities that Diana is talking about, and be able to model those, you'll be always misapplying the wrong tool or the wrong intervention. So I think there's a real opportunity, practical opportunity for organizations that are committed to measurement to measure in the right way to measure on the level of the community, not the structure. Because the org structure, which is the typical way that you slice and dice data, is almost certainly not going to really represent these communities. Fascinating. Let's close there. Diana, thanks so much. That was a really helpful discussion. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well. <laughs>